Uh, good afternoon. I'm Susan Wolfson, professor of English here at Princeton. And it's my pleasure and honor to welcome you to the third of Helen Vendler's lectures on lyric intimacy, speaking to invisible listeners. So far, writes the author of Coming of Age as a Poet, I have been writing as though the poet were concerned only with expressing a single sense of the outer world and the inner self. But there is a larger community demanding a voice in his poetry. Even if the young writer is a lyric poet rather than an epic or a narrative one, he must also adopt a social stance, a position vis-a-vis -vis other people. Deciding on the living inhabitants of one's imaginative work and one's relations with those inhabitants is one of the necessities facing young poets. Well, I think this is a fair description of the pleasurable necessity that Helen Vendler has faced and embraced as a critic across her entire career, a career inhabited by her relations with poets of all ages and centuries, from eager young Keats to Whitman in his furious waning, but also the community to which she is socially tuned, her colleagues and her students, in institutional settings and in the public sphere of her generous lecturing, teaching, conversation, and literate publications. As you've noticed from the first two lectures of this present series, as well as from every book Professor Vendler has given us on Keats, on Herbert, on Stevens, on Shakespeare, on modern poets, on poets coming of age in signature poems, from which I have just quoted at length, her attentions are not only remarkable demonstrations of her critical skills, interests, and values, but also remarkably teacherly. By showing us how she reads, she shows us how to become more attentive readers, how to reflect on the aesthetic events that compel our attention in ways that generate a lively sympathy with the poet's imagination in all its complex, various, and strenuously conflicted impulses. On all these occasions, Helen Vendler radiates a lyric intimacy with her subject, reaching back across the centuries to bring forward the poet as a presently addressed intimate imagination. This reach back is the very subject of this afternoon's lecture on John Ashbery's powerful engagement with Francesco Parmigianino's self-portrait in, in a convex mirror. I was about to say complex, but that might have been good too. So please join me in welcoming Helen Vendler once again to Princeton and in thanking her for a memorable set of events in a rainy and then increasingly sunny April week. I'd like to thank not only Mary Morrill of the Princeton University Press um, for inviting me to give this series of lectures, but also for my thanks to my three introducers, um, Michael Wood, Han Margaret Daniel, and Susan Wolfson. It's hard to hear oneself introduced, but I find that these were all listenable to in a very, very gratifying way. Um, I'm also grateful just for the, for the calling by the press for me to do something that would be the inauguration of a series that could be available to be read by the general reader. There are things pro and con such a conception of writing, but I think it's good to do that sort of writing as well as the sort that is restricted to one's fellow scholars. Those of you who were not here earlier will be hearing a couple of these things for the first time, perhaps, and I ask the forgiveness of those of you who have heard them if I do a little repeating at the beginning. In the normative lyric, this is the repeating part, the speaker is always alone in a room with nobody else present. This solitude does not mean that the speaker is not a citizen or a social person. It only means that all social relations are presented as they are reflected on in solitude and embodied not in live interaction with other persons, but in lexical and cognitive reference. 
The solitude of the lyric speaker, the exclusion of any other person from the space of the normative lyric, has caused socially oriented literary critics to conclude that lyric lacks information about their field of interest, the class of the clash of classes, the domestic and political mediations of sexuality, the fabric of community. Once a speaker is alone in his room on this view, nothing interactively interesting can happen, so nothing of social value can be articulated. If ethics focuses chiefly on human interactions, shall we say then that the lyric is ethically invisible or ethically neutral? Above all, since lyric is the genre par excellence in which an aesthetic click must be brought about in a relatively short time and with economy of effect, can lyric be said to have any space for ethical import? Is lyric able to be socially as well as privately relevant? And can the construction of models of verbal intimacy, one of lyric's greatest powers, be conceived of, the construction of these models of intimacy, can that be conceived of as a form of socially or ethically important activity? And with whom, since the speaker is alone, can verbal intimacy be constructed? The solitude of the speaker does not relieve him of urgency of expression nor of the need to be heard. Many lyric speakers have therefore addressed in intimate terms an invisible listener. In the work of George Herbert, The Invisible Listener is God, in Whitman in Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, it is the reader in futurity. Ashbury is one of those, John Berryman is another, who have sought intimacy with a listener from the past. Anne Bradstreet, for John Berryman in homage to Mistress Bradstreet, and for Ashbury, Francesco Parmigianino. And Ashbury has a second invisible listener always, the present reader of whom many of his poems are acutely conscious. My focus here will be on the importance to Ashbury of establishing intimacy within the space of the poem, especially in his long Ars Poetica, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror. At the same time, I want to say something about how the social order enters the discursive space of lyric. May I stop to do an addendum? I should have added to the people I am thanking, Dorothy Coakley, who has managed all the arrangements for this lecture series and to whom I'm extremely grateful, <laughs> and many phone calls and so forth. Flights, limousines, pickups, times, dates, all of that, without which none of this would have happened. So thank you. <clears throat> Because Ashbury hasn't engaged in, in explicit political and social commentary and activism after the, fact, uh, after the fashion of Allen Ginsberg, Adrian Rich, W.S. Merwin, or some others of his generation, he has sometimes been thought socially apathetic, solipsistic, or narcissistic. In view of this critique, which I believe to be false, it is ironic that Ashbury's greatest formal linguistic achievement has been to bring into lyric an entire social lexicon of both English English and American English, common speech, journalistic cliche, business and technical and scientific language, allusion to pop culture as well as to canonical works. In Ashbury's lines, what makes them so interesting, words are often sprung free of their usual contexts words which began in a, what I think of as a vertical relation to each other, as archaic words stand above contemporary words, or formal words stand above slang, or words that stand in no relation to each other at all, such as we shall immediately see, the words tacked up and angst. I mean, it would be hard to find a sentence that would include them both. <clears throat> These words that belong either in vertical relations or in no relation at all to each other are brought by Ashbury into horizontal metonymic intimacy side by side with each other in a slightly surreal but at least often comprehensible narration. I don't suppose anybody understands all of Ashbury's stories, but if you work at them, they, some of them at least, many of them become clarified. For instance, in the case I'm about to quote from the poem Grand Galop, Ashbury hybridizes two stories, the medieval myth we all know of a knight's archaic journey to a tower where he will suffer an ordeal. He mixes that myth with its contemporary parodic equivalent, the journey of the hero of a Western movie into a gully where he finds one of the dead mining towns of the gold rush. Naturally, 
since Ashbury is symbolizing everybody's experience in life, the quest is unsuccessful. From the point of view of the now enlightened speaker, looking back on his own failed quest, the story is both true and ironized, absurd and yet angst-ridden. The Asperian speaker here tacitly assumes that his readers themselves have had intimate experience with the impersonally voiced story that he is recapitulating. Here's the story. One approaches, you have to think of Child Roland of Dark Tower Cave and that sort of thing. One approaches a worn, round, stone tower crouching low in the hollow of a gully with no door or window but a lot of old license plates tacked up over a slit too narrow for a wrist to pass through and a sign. Not abandon all hope ye who enter here, but Van Camp's pork and beans. From then on in, angst-colored skies, emotional withdrawals. In his syntax as well as in his diction, Ashbury juxtaposes the high, one approaches a worn round stone tower, and the demotic from then on in. Ashbury's way of telling the history of emotional life invites us to become co-creators of the poem as we jump following the poet's lexicon from Child Roland to John Wayne to medieval illustrations of narrow slits in fortified walls to Miner's Gulch to Kierkegaard to Freud. Ashbury assumes that his range of reference is our own, that any of us who tend to read poetry will find hand and footholds in this layered cliff face of 20th century sensibility. The moral result of traveling through such a heterodox lexical collage is to make us subconsciously ask, as we read, to what degree we ourselves subscribe to these culturally available myths of explanation. Do we secretly imagine ourselves as knights embarked on Arthurian quests, or as just plain American folks reducing venerable cultural icons to mundane license plates, or as creatures of Kierkegaardian angst, or as perpetrators or victims of Freudian emotional withdrawals. <coughs> Any recognizable fragments of language and imagination, then, are welcome to claim a room in the accepting hostel of the poet's mind. As Ashbury says in Houseboat Days, the mind is so hospitable, taking in everything, like borders. Only one constant underlies all this variation, and that, paradoxically, is change. He inherits that from Stevens, of course. It must change. Experiential change, change in life, with its ever-accelerating rate of change, is one of Ashbury's two great moral subjects, love is the other. But how is change to be attractively, or at least comically represented, so as to lead us to accept it, even to welcome it, as the basis of a moral life which consequently must be ever-provisional? And how does the lyric, the form of intimacy, summon us into its solitary, summon into its solitary precinct a sense of our changing society at large so as to make its readers not only intimate with the author as a private fellow sufferer, but also intimate with his social predicaments and consequently by implication with their own? Ashbury does the first, making us intimate with him by his colloquial churn inducing the reader to live along the line, change by change, with the poet. He does the second, introducing social predicaments, by his enormous lexical range, which exhibits what he called, speaking of a contemporary artist, a Balzacian knowledge of details. Since the loop of co-creation between Ashbury and his reader is indispensable, if the reader is to follow and understand the poem, Ashbury, more even than Whitman, conceives of lyric as a projected colloquy. There can, of course, be no actual colloquy. The poet may very well be dead by the time a future reader comes across the poem, but it is the imagined projection of colloquy with a listener that enables the Ashbury poem to be written at all. Ashbury is well aware of how rare it is that any reader gives any poem any attention and equally aware of the paradox implicit in the creation of a spoken colloquy that cannot take place except with the reader's cooperation. A paradoxical oxymoron the I-ness of you, the you-ness of me in this colloquy, the union of those two unlike things, I and you, subtends the poet's colloquy projection. Ashbury's paradoxes and oxymorons issue in a poignantly modest 16-line quasi-sonnet by that name. He was originally going to call the whole book Paradoxes and Oxymorons, but it ended up being called Shadow Train. But this is the original titular poem. 
this quasi-sonnet, in which the poet acts out in terms successively playful, ironic, and pleading his ethics of the intimate lyric, by which it, the poem, mediates between the I of the poet and the you of his reader, paradoxes and oxymorons. This poem is concerned with language on a very plain level. Look at it talking to you. You look out a window or pretend to fidget. You have it, but you don't have it. You miss it, it misses you, you miss each other. Ashbury does not say, we miss each other, I the poet and you the reader. It is not at first glance the poet that the reader is to encounter in the poem. The poem, having been conceived, is already an it, an object with an achieved contour. Yet the poem has also become, as the heard voice of lyric, a reified personal presence. The two of you miss each other, says the poet, comparing the poem and its non-reader, its distracted non-reader, to two people who have failed to meet. The poem can also, since it's conceived of as a personal presence, feel inner emotion. Here it feels the pain of a rejected suitor. The poem is sad because it wants to be yours and cannot be. Disappointed at its failure to arouse the reader, the poem introduces a question that the as yet indifferent but potential reader might ask. It's implied that the reader, mildly nettled by the schoolmasterish tone of the opening lines, questions the author's conceptual language. What's a plain level? The author's answer defends the plain level, but also insists on the literariness, the intrinsic play of the artwork. What's a plain level? It's that and other things bringing a system of them into play. Play? Well, actually, yes, but I consider play to be a deeper outside thing, a dreamed role pattern, as in the division of grace these long August days. Without proof, open-ended, the plain level and a host of other things, ideas, hopes, learning, rhetorical flourishes, metaphor, come into play and become an Ashbarian system, a dreamed role pattern, an imagined holograph projection of a possible way to live, an open-ended project. The poem hopes to divide its grace with a reader as sunlight spreads its grace through an August day. It's up to the reader to see whether the dreamed role pattern in the poem is a play he can enter into. The invitation is extended, but it can offer the reader no proof of its value beyond its own attractions. The author concedes that as the poet's dream condenses into actual language and mechanical publication, much of it, sometimes all, is lost. And before you know it, it gets lost in the steam and chatter of typewriters. The experience of today's creation is over and the poet must begin again tomorrow. What induces the poet to begin over and over, asks the uh, poem, and answers that the poet is motivated by the unconscious and therefore unmet needs of his imagined listener. The poet hopes to introduce the reader to aspects both of himself and of his own era, aspects that without the poet's intervention, the reader might miss. The poet addresses his necessary but fickle potential reader. I think you exist only to tease me into doing it on your level, and then you aren't there. I'll have adopted a different attitude. If the reader has adopted a dissenting or evasive attitude, it means that he's been persuaded into a different, a contradictory role pattern, dreamed by a more powerful other than the poet, a, a parent, perhaps, or a different author, a political party, an evangelizing church. Ashbury, who, whose view of life is fundamentally a comic one, avoids the potential unhappy ending glimpsed in the wings in which the reader would reject the role pattern offered him by the um, poem. Instead, Ashbury gives us the happy ending in which an angel messenger in the form of a poem bestows on the reader a life companion who is both the poet and miraculously a new version of the reader himself. Having internalized the dreamed role pattern of the poem, the reader is morally reconstituted. As Ashbury says, and the poem has set me softly down beside you. The poem is you. In Ashbury's multiplication here of the poet's social role, he is the remote author of the written poem, the intimate speaking presence created within it, the invisible winged conveyor of the poem into the imagination of the reader, and the identical twin of the reader who has internalized the role pattern as his own. In his most famous poem of colloquy, 
1972 self-portrait in a convex mirror, Ashbury casts himself not only as a writer, but also as a reader, in quotes, or because he's confronting a painting, as a viewer. We learn from this openly autobiographical poem that in 1959 in the Vienna Pinacothek, in the company of his lover, Pierre Vinturi, Ashbury came across Francesco Parmigianino's haunting small round painting called Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, which Peter Chardon recently described in The New Yorker in March as art history's most talismanic object before Marcel Duchamp. (laughs) Standing before the painting, the portrait, the young Ashbury received an initial shock of the sort described in paradoxes and oxymorons. The poem is you. The painting was Ashbury himself. Unable to forget that shock of recognition, Ashbury began to read historical and aesthetic commentary on the painting. More than a decade later, in a 552-line poem of 1972, the poet reconstitutes his original 1959 experience in which a relation with his lover next to him, self-recognition as he faces the portrait, and aesthetic admiration of Parmigianino's ingenuity were entwined. And then within his own self-portrait, he joins to that shock reproduced the subsequent learning he has acquired by reading about the portrait. Ashbury uses the Parmigianino painting and himself as its spectator as the model by which to draw his own self-portrait as a 20th century poet in intimate colloquy with a dead artist. A trans-historical wave of response connects the contemporary observer of the painting to all those who have preceded him in being moved by Parmigianino's work, from Pope Clement to the art critic Sidney Friedberg. The group even includes the Germans who invaded Parmigianino's studio during the sack of Rome in 1527 and, amazed at his sang-froid, let him escape. Ashbury sends out a beam of social imagination to Parmigianino's era and a further beam to the terminology of art criticism as it has been voiced from Parmigianino's time to our own, Vasari to Sidney Friedberg. In his vulnerable and arresting poem, Ashbury cycles through the feelings which an impassioned observer of a painting or the reader of a poem might experience from detached objectivity to awaken sympathy, from scholarly interest to aesthetic investment, from self-referential meditation to immediate and heartfelt colloquy with the long-dead painter. Why was it this portrait in which Ashbury so deeply recognized himself, so that more than a decade after seeing it, he is still possessed by it and must reconstitute it in a different medium, substituting his own face in the center of his poem as he appropriates Parmigianino's title. For Ashbury, the supremely interesting and deeply confirming decision of the painter was the purposeful alteration of the reality that the, poem, that the painting purports to represent. The distortion, the alteration caused by Parmigianino's startling rejection of an ordinary mirror to reflect his face and to paint from, in favor of a partially distorting convex one. In the actual painting, the painter's young face, because it's reflected in the center of the mirror, is is affected hardly at all by the curvature. And the background is neutral enough not to disturb the viewer by its curvature. What is distorted greatly is the right hand of the painter, his creative hand, which extends itself toward the viewer, but then curves away. Could we have the slide, please? And how do I do the lights? Um, ah, there it is. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's small. And the painter is very young in his 20s when he does this self-portrait. And you can see that the distressing or disturbing thing about the painting as you first see it is the great disproportion between the face and the hand that occupies the front and and lower part of the portrait. Here is Ashbury's recreation of his first impression of the painting. Beginning casually as if in conversation with his reader and already ascribing motion and volition to the represented hand. As Parmigianino did it, the right hand bigger than the head thrust at the viewer and swerving easily away 
as though to protect what it advertises. A few leaded panes, old beams, fur, pleated muslin, a coral ring, ran together in a movement supporting the face, which swims toward and away like the hand, except that it is in repose. It is what is sequestered. In the rest of the poem, Ashbury veers between seeing the portrait face and its soul as sequestered in an artifact and, by contrast, seeing it as available for colloquy, as obeying the law of its construction on the one hand and as speaking to its viewer on the other. We can understand better his notion of the sequestration of any person's soul from those of other persons if we read his interpretation of a drawing by Saul Steinberg entitled Gabinetto del Proprio Niente, the, uh, the closet, as it would have been called in uh, Renaissance uh, titles, of nothing, which represents an alchemist's chamber full of wittily revealing personal contents but containing no human figure of the alchemist. Ashbury comments on this uninhabited room, the finished symbol of consciousness as done, as invented by Steinberg. This last is for me one of Steinberg's most moving drawings and perhaps epitomizes his strange, comfortably uncomfortable world. Life is a room, empty except for the furniture. No person can enter it because it is already inside us. The furniture is both useful and ornamental, but none of it will be used because no one will ever descend the steps marked with the days of the week or enter through the open door, beyond which one glimpses a tree whose trunk and branches are marked with inscriptions too far away, alas, to be readable. Yet it all does have a function, that of a symbol, the only function we need concern ourselves with since it includes everything by telling about it. The act of storytelling alone is of, any is of any consequence. What gets said, sorry, what is said gets said anyway, and manner is the only possible conjugation of matter. In Steinberg's symbol of the impregnable but open consciousness, one glimpses nature, but not the nature from which the romantic poets could read symbols. There are inscriptions on the Steinbergian tree but like the Steinbergian passports of our immigrant ancestors, they have become unintelligible. Nonetheless, the furniture and structure of the alchemical room give us enough symbolically with which to conjecture the life narrative of the alchemist. So with the Parmigianino portrait, with its greeting and shielding frontal hand, the contemporary artist goes to the masterpieces of the past, seeking an intimate presentness of instruction, colloquy, sympathy. Ashbury does not treat tradition, as the etymology suggests, as something handed down. Rather, tradition for him is a source urgently yearned toward by the present. Yet the temptation to slide into inert imitation of its irresistible attractions must be resisted if the present-day artist is to reach his own originality. Addressing Francesco Parmigianino intimately by his first name at the end of the poem, the poet at first asks merely for the withdrawal of the hand that had so touched him, but then realizes that if he is to preserve his own selfhood, he will have to murder what has awakened him. Therefore, I beseech you, withdraw that hand. Offer it no longer as shield or greeting, the shield of a greeting, Francesco. There is room for one bullet in the chamber, I were looking through the wrong end of the telescope as you fall back at a speed faster than that of light to flatten ultimately among the features of the room. As the diagram still sketched on the wind, as Ashbury calls it, begins to fade, as the illusionistic afterglow of shared aesthetic aim and moral sympathy between the two artists subsides, the poem with a Keatsian turn, the whole poem is very Keatsian, of course, in, in its subjective and objective uh, entering and leaving the space of colloquy, just as Keats does in the Ode on a Grecian Urn. But as this begins to fade, the poem with a Keatsian turn ends in the embalmed chill of memory. The hand holds no chalk, and each part of the whole falls off and cannot know it knew, except here and there, in cold pockets of remembrance, whispers out of time. It's also a Proustian ending, of course. 
by recording in the poem the powerful modification over the years of his sensibility by this portrait, Ashbury has drawn his own portrait, but one distorted in his own poem by his compression of 13 years and much reading into a few pages and by his exclusion of other aspects of his life during those 13 years. Parmigianino's painting has confirmed the, poet, the young poet's belief in the necessity and beauty of distortion. It has also fostered the solacing illusion of direct communication between a dead artist and a living viewer, so much so as to compel the young beholder to think of the artist not as the dead art historical Parmigianino, but as a kindred spirit, the Francesco who forsook mimetic realism, especially in the crucial mimesis of the representation of his own body, who forsook mimetic realism for a candid acknowledgement of the distorting curve of every enabling aesthetic. But Ashbury, as a fellow creator, also feels the admiration, an admiration for the distorting power of the distorted hand as it transcribes through the medium of paint what the eye registers from the light-empowered convex mirror. If, as Ashbury declares by adopting Parmigianino as his model, every aesthetic representation is skewed away from transcriptive realism by its own formal law and by historical circumstance and by individual psychology, no direct ethical parallel to actual life action can be deduced from the apparent intimacy with the past that a symbolic object seems to create. We may think we know Parmigianino's face, but it is itself, that knowledge is itself put into question through the face's relation to the disproportionately enlarged hand. Although Ashbury's interested in the epistemological question raised by the convex mirror and the magnified and ambiguously curving hand, he is more interested Sorry. in the ethical question of the company provided by an artwork. If, as he is convinced, nobody can in truth enter this, the alchemical chamber of the artwork, what is the solace, what is the company, what is the release that we feel when we have encountered and responded to an authentic work of the past? That is a way of asking what the lyric tradition contributes to our moral life. In choosing a self-portrait as his vehicle, Ashbury is in part defending his own genre, the intimate lyric. Ashbury does not choose as his symbol uh, on which to project his own aesthetic, the sort of artwork, a history painting or a religious painting, which would be undergirded by a social or political network of meaning. A self-portrait cannot be said to mean anything in the way a painting of the Raft of the Medusa or St. Jerome does. Nor does Parmigianino's work suggest a moral lesson by exemplifying an identifiable autobiographical incident in the manner of Van Gogh's self-portrait with a bandaged ear. The youth reflected in the convex mirror displays no attributes such as priestly clothing or a scholarly book or a scales of justice by which he could be identified or his occupation recognized. He offers us nothing but his questioning gaze and the subjection of his hand to convex distortion. For a moment in a remarkable exchange of cells, Ashbury becomes the Renaissance figure who has been englobed in the portrait and who longs in human rebellion to escape, to find an exit from his eternizing artifact. In vain, the law of circular form forbids an escape from the chamber into actual intimacy with others. One would like to stick one's hand out of the globe, says Ashbury, speaking of both himself and Parmigianino in a single unit, one would like to stick one's hand out of the globe, but its dimension, what carries it, will not allow it. No doubt it is this, not the reflex to hide something which makes the hand loom large as it retreats slightly. There is no way to build it flat like a section of a wall. It must join the segment of a circle, roving back to the body of which it seems so unlikely a part, to fence in and shore up the face on which the effort of this condition reads like a pinpoint of a smile, a spark or star, one is not sure of having seen as darkness resumes. Because of the law of aesthetic fulfillment that it must follow, art, says Ashbury, can offer nothing but a perverse light whose imperative of subtlety dooms in advance 
its conceit to light up, unimportant but meant. The creating artist in any medium aims, of course, to introduce illumination, to light something up, but his moral or intellectual intent is deflected during the execution since the law of art, not the artist's intention, is the ultimate master of the evolving work. Art as such has no interior. It is pure surface, but that surface in a wonderful formulation of Ashbury's is the visible core of its generating intense, moral, and formal. And just as there are no words for the surface, that is, no words to say what it really is, that it is not superficial but a visible core, then there is no way out of the problem of pathos versus experience. The unbreachable gap between the pathos of the work, an aesthetic quality, and the experience of intimacy that it produ produces, a moral quality, means that there is no straight path from the artwork to life action. The two, aesthetic impression and moral sympathy, cannot coincide by themselves, in themselves, though they may find temporary coincidence in the mind of the one responding to them. What is it then, in Ashbury's view, that a viewer or reader can gain by way of moral experience from an artist's self-portrait? First of all, as he says, a sense of stability impossible to terrestrial beings. The whole is stable within instability, a globe like ours, resting on a pedestal of vacuum. Because it's not alive, it can be stable. The microcosm of the representation resembles the microcosm of our globe, but since it occupies neither collapsing or expanding real space nor hurtling real time, it could convey the repose of untroubled intimacy, if only within the vacuum of virtual reality. Ashbury addresses the represented Francesco directly, quoting Sir Philip Sidney, the poet, nothing lieth, for he nothing affirmeth. You will stay on, restive, serene in your gesture, which is neither embrace nor warning, but which holds something of both in pure affirmation that doesn't affirm anything. When we understand that the young man's mysterious gesture holds something of embrace and something of warning, we have come close to a declaration of what the seeker may gain, what the young Ashbury in Vienna did gain, by way of the interchange of selves with a past artist through a formerly understood artwork. The viewer will feel embraced. He will feel warned. The embrace is that immediate fascination so great that it seems a communication through time itself, yet its manifest formal law, its impregnability, exerts simultaneously the warning that life as we know it has been distorted by this communication. When the spectator feels warned after the warmth of the colloquy has uh, comforted and solaced him, but when he feels the warning of the impregnability of the artwork, he becomes angry. This chamber, which once seemed so open, but now seems almost repellently impermeable, keeps its algorithms securely locked inside. Actually, the skin of the bubble chamber is as tough as reptile eggs. Everything gets programmed there in due course. More keeps getting included without adding to the sum. Here, the ugly language of tough-skinned reptile eggs, the chilly image of the quantum bubble chamber, the, impersonal, the impersonal functionality of the computer program, and the incomprehensible paradoxes of the mathematics of infinity are all invoked and they are uttered in the terse language, short clause after short clause, of disillusioned repartee. Actually, this is the truth of the matter. In this passage, as in Grand Galop, and in many others, of course, in Ashbury, practically all of them, we are asked to take the measure of our own time, an era that generates in our minds such scientific and mathematical images for experience, as Ashbury presents here. Do we feel enclosed in a bubble chamber solipsistically impermeable to others? Do we feel ourselves colliding at random like particles in a bubble chamber? Do we feel programmed by an implacable fate? Do we feel both overwhelmed by life some and yet exhaustingly, infinitely penetrable by yet more data entries? Because Ashbury moves so rapidly, various moral, epistemological, and pictorial questions seem hurled at us as we read his images. 
to realize that those images and countless more are inside us since we recognize them as we meet them in these lines is to ad adopt a revised self-portrait uh, of ourselves and our world, a portrait reflecting a far more varied landscape of external social circumstance than we customarily admit to our thoughts. We normally don't put bubble chambers, reptile eggs, mathematics of infinity, and computer programming all in one basket, but of course that is what Ashbury does. If on the one hand, the enchantment of the aesthetic embrace so extends comprehension of a far-off sensibility that one wants to address the artist by the intimate name Francesco. The repulsion of the warning against engulfment is so shocking, on the other hand, that one must use the single bullet in the chamber to execute either the past artist or oneself. To kill Francesco is to eliminate a master so powerful that he would quench one's own originality. To be so seduced by Francesco that one merely imitates him would be to kill oneself as an artist. The moral experience of this strange colloquy is a complex one. We are the grateful discoverers of miraculously living sources in the art of the past. We can speak familiarly to the gifted painter as we receive the greeting of his extended hand. Yet we are wary potential creators of our own modern selves warned away from servile imitation of the past by the shield of the same hand. And we are imperfect observers, always likely, like the reader in Paradoxes and Oxymorons, to exit from an artwork or any other life enterprise by succumbing to a failure of attention. The balloon pops, says Ashbury. The attention turns dully away. We are the heirs not only of past art, however, we are equally the heirs to past intellectuality voiced here in scholarly commentary. Sidney Friedberg, in his Parmigianino, says of it, realism in this portrait no longer produces an objective truth, but a pizzeria. However, its distortion does not create a feeling of disharmony. Such a passage calls us to mental attention, reminding us that Ashbury's poem is itself a third-order discourse, dependent on earlier secondary art historical discourses such as those of Vasari and Friedberg, which are themselves dependent on interior first-order philosophical discussions that have revolved around terms such as objective truth, disharmony, distortion, and pizzeria. When a part of consciousness that has been drifting unattached is once again called to attention, as Ashbury successively calls into rapid play such elements as the visual, the intellectual, the historical, the erotic, the scientific, the literary. The reader's self expands to comply with the multiple and disjunctive lexical orders of the text, themselves reflective of successive historical and social orders. My guide in these matters, says Ashbury to Francesco, is yourself <clears throat> firm, oblique, accepting everything with the same wraith of a smile. In accepting everything, in imitation of Parmigianino, Ashbury, the reader, calls on a spectrum of emotional and moral energies. When Ashbury sums up the effect of art, it is with an analogy to the tales of Hoffmann. What is novel in the painting by Parmigianino, he says, is that by its technique and its originality, it becomes more intimate to us than a doppelganger, substituting itself and its own context within us for our ordinary consciousness of self, space, and time. What is novel is the extreme care in rendering, in rendering the velleities, obviously borrowed from Eliot, word that he loved, proofrock. What is novel is the extreme care in rendering the velleities of the rounded, reflecting surface. It is the first mirror portrait. That's not true. So that you could be fooled for a moment before you realize the reflection isn't yours. You feel then like one of those Huffman characters who have been deprived of a reflection, except that the whole of me is seen to be supplanted by the strict otherness of the painter in his other room. We have surprised him at work, but no, he has surprised us as he works. As Ashbury presents to the reader his own self-portrait refracted from Parmigianinos, he hopes that you could be fooled for a moment before you realize the reflection isn't yours. You have surprised him as he writes about Parmigianino, but
But no, he has surprised you as you look at his poem and recognize yourself as a 20th century person, also in the presence of bubble chambers, reptile legs, and whatever else. You have been taken out of your time and have been immersed in Ashbury's, only to awake as when one looks out, startled by a snowfall which even now is ending in specks and sparkles of snow. It happened while you were inside, asleep. This Keatsian awaking to the world makes us notice that life has been moving on while we slumbered in aesthetic intimacy, lulled by the charm of the seductive Ashbarian voice. As the new chill creeps into the air, Ashbury turns away from his intimacy with Francesco and enters instead into intimate colloquy with us, his present reader. The embrace of the portrait cannot last. This is its negative side, says Ashbury, commenting on the dissolution of the beautiful effect of a mirror portrait. Its positive side, when you come out of the dreamed role pattern into which you have entered while you were inside the portrait, its positive side is making you notice life and the stresses that only seemed to go away. And just as Parmigianino found his studio invaded by German soldiers as they sacked Rome, so says Ashbury, what we need now is this unlikely challenger pounding on the gates of an amazed castle to startle the sensibility into a further revaluation of its contemporary moment, a refreshed originality of perception. Ashbury's poem insists on the instability of all positions that the self can hold, moral or epistemological, since all, he says, are thoughts that peel off and fly away at breathless speeds, like uh, pieces of the universe and the red shift or whatever. Positions are always being changed and flying away. But the poem also conveys Ashbury's second persistent topic, the force of love, which within our platonic heritage is the allegorical representation of eternal stability. When the poet first saw the portrait, he was with Pierre, his lover, and love was in the ascendant, intensifying the experience. But now, though Ashbury continues to believe in the existence of love and in its value for intensifying and enhancing what we perceive, it is obscured. Love once, he says, tipped the scales, but now is shadowed, invisible, though mysteriously present around somewhere. Changing this as it glides towards death is now the more apparent of the two co-principles of Ashburyan reflection, love and change. But it was love that focused in 1959 and stands ready to focus at any moment one's attention on life with a force that only the apprehension of death can equal. The intense scrutiny motivated by love makes its object a paradigm of the whole world as represented in the refining and assimilating attention of the artist. The sample one sees is not to be taken as merely that, but as everything as it may be imagined outside time, not as a gesture, but as all in the refined, assimilable state. Because the artist has purified, sorry, because the artwork has purified itself of the extraneous, while including all, since even the surrounding heterogeneity, perhaps especially the heterogeneity, has itself assumed symbolic form, the artist's point of view becomes assimilable by others, not of his time, not of his place. Yet we cannot derive any specific principles of moral action from the impressions, however intimately felt, that we receive from an artwork, since those are derived from impressions, um, since those are derived of, of sorry, so those are derived from impressions um, gained from the artist's projection of life onto the idiosyncratic and symbolic plane of art. If almost insensible changes in our moral sensibility take place over time, we perceive them only in the long run, as Ashbury can perceive only in 1972, the disseminated reflections generated in him over 13 years. For Ashbury, the artwork's union of aesthetic law and the illusion of intimacy provokes a significant expansion in our sense of inner possibility, of which the whole poem is an instance, although from it we cannot avoid awaking to the fresh demands of a changed moment. What is the result for a reader who wants the literary work to help us live our lives, as Stevens said it must, of looking at a lyric such as Ashbury's? Because a poet wants above all to make something unique and irreplaceable, 
he would not like, no poet would like, to have all his works collected together as conveyors of his ethical sense. It's precisely the will of each individual artwork capable of distorting the original moral urgency of the artist that makes moral paraphrase of art so difficult. Ashbury, writing on the artist R.B. Kitai, says that the artist is constantly scrutinizing all the chief indicators, poetry, politics, pictures, sex, the attitudes of people he sees, and the auras of situations they bring with him in an effort to decode the cryptogram of the world. For the poet who is no less observant than the novelist, but for whom the social order has to be represented in words rather than in dramatic scenes or the interaction of characters, art is a resolving place for the resistant plural semiotics of the contemporary. As the artist's mental accumulation meets the compelling law of form, it is regularized from unintelligibility into a shape that seems right. The morality of this act, as Wallace Stevens has said, consists in rejecting proposed forms that merely console or sanctify. Forms that console or sanctify merely are concessions to sentimentality. Parmigianino and Ashbury after him refuses the consoling or sanctifying directly mimetic concession while nonetheless allowing recognizable figuration and emotional intimacy to play dominant roles. In praising Chardin, Ashbury once wrote of the magnificent progress possible as the artist helps the spirit to take a new step. If one takes the down to earth as a point of departure and either makes nor wastes any effort in trying to rise to an exalted or splendid level, every effort, every contribution of the artistic genius goes into transfiguring the manner of execution, changing the language and helping the spirit to take a new step thus constituting magnificent progress. Part of the down-to-earth for poets is fostering within the lyric poem a climate of trust and even love. Ashbury here stands between his predecessor in the past, the Francesco he both summons and dismisses, and the fictive reader of his own self-portrait in verse, addressing both in the poet Ashbury, uh, isn't between Francesco and the reader, addressing both invisible listeners in tones of intimate comprehension and sympathy. Ashbury's listeners, Francesco in fantasy and ourselves in reality, animate the poem from private meditation on an artwork into colloquy with a corresponding other, from the solitude of the lyric chamber to an imaginative twinning with someone more like us than we had imagined. The invisible listeners to poems are constituted by the poems themselves as the persons who understand, who will complete the expressive circuit of thought and language initiated by an artwork, and who will engage in the imagined ethical modeling of an ideal mutuality. At the same time, in self-portrait in a convex mirror, the listeners, Francesco and the reader, are embedded in an Ashburyan cryptogram of lexical reference, which once decoded reveals within every metaphorical phrase the late 20th century social order from which Ashbury writes. Thank you.